Father, our hearts are full with all these things that you've done for us, how you revealed yourself. And we pray now that as we come to your word that your spirit would open our hearts, the, the inner being that we have, and fill us with who you are again. In Christ we pray this. Amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> in just three weeks, we are coming up to Easter, a pivotal moment in the church calendar and kind of a keystone of the Christian year. Of course, there are celebrations that go along with that, family things, but we also have some moments as a church family that we will gather for, and I'll just remind you about Good Friday. Our Good Friday service is at 10.30 a.m. It's about an hour-long service, a uh, meaningful service that we've kind of developed over the years following a tenebrae tradition, which means a shadows. And so we darken our auditorium and we read the scriptures. It's just a focus on following with Jesus those moments and, and the events leading him to the cross. And so I encourage you to be setting that, uh, that time apart. And we've uh, been thinking that just in our sermons leading up to Easter that we want to spend some time and just reflect on the person of Christ in a in not a different way, but just a focus in this way to help us in thinking through some of those disciplines and meditations that help us in our identification with him. A verse that we are going to just keep reminding you of comes out of Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 through 11, where the Apostle Paul, as he is writing about his experience in Christ, and as he talks about his desires and what he wants, he says this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the power of participating in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And I find this a very fitting description of my desire as a disciple of Jesus. I want to know him. And in that knowing, it's beyond an intellectual kind of knowing. I want to understand Jesus more than just facts and figures, to know his life history. I want to know Jesus in that relational sense, in that shared experience sense. I believe that's what Paul is, is crying out for here. He says, I want to know Jesus. I want to understand who he is in this way that is pivotal in Paul's life. And this is Paul the Apostle who met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I mean, if anybody's had that experience of Jesus, it must have been him. But here he is writing to the Philippians well into his years of apostleship, and he continues to say, I want to know him. It's just that idea there is more to know of Jesus, to experience him in a way that, that allows him to be more real, to be more uh, taking hold of our hearts. And it's really the prayer of Easter. It's why we have moments like this in church calendar to drive us to these places where the Spirit can open our hearts so that what we know becomes more real. We've all had experiences like that, you know, where you've maybe understood something, you've known facts and figures, but then one day it becomes more real to you. I was recently reminded about a trip to Israel that I had way back, and I was amazed when I started figuring it out. It's 40-something years ago. It was at the end of my seminary, my last sem uh, semester, that I was privileged to go for a couple of weeks to Israel and travel and be in the spots where Jesus actually walked. And that was really, in a sense, it changed the way that I read my scriptures. Because I was able to see, and I can still picture some of those moments. We sat around the Sea of Galilee, and our tour guide took us way up into kind of a backcountry farming area. And we went right out to a cliff that overlooked the Sea of Galilee. 
and he pointed out what it was like for Jesus to take a boat from Capernaum, which we could see on the North Shore, and, and sail across the sea to Bethesda. Right? Those kind of moments. Suddenly that becomes more real to me. It's that, those kind of moments that we want to have in our understanding of Jesus. I recently heard the story of a man who was uh, really refused to wear his seatbelt. He was just against it. You know, he, he appreciated it was a law, but he just thought, no, it was too restricting, and he was okay, and he had all the reasons why he didn't like wearing it, until one day he had a friend who was in an accident and actually was thrown through the front windshield of his car in the accident. Ever since then, the man has become a staunch seatbelt wearer. <laughs> what changed? Did he get new information? You know, was there new facts given to him? No. There was an experience. There was a moment of understanding that made it all real to him, right? Those are the things, those are the moments in our life that I believe Paul is saying when he says, I want to know Christ. I want to understand him in a way that he communicates to me, that he allows me to be filled with a freshness of who he is in my heart, in my life. And as he's praying this, it's this passage that we're coming into today, and we started last week with Derek. That in this moment, in this journey that we're in in the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to Mark chapter 9 today, if you want to start turning there in your Bible. In this particular passages in Mark, we're, we're in this moment in Mark's Gospel, it's kind of this pivotal moment when he is inviting his disciples into a deeper understanding of who he is. And last week we looked at that passage where Jesus, as he was calling his disciples together, was working on this whole theme of who he is and inviting people to understand this. And he started to ask the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives that wonderful answer, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And there's this great sense that he had this understanding and Jesus is driving this to this moment. Who is this, people are asking. Who is this man? And we've discovered there that Peter, while he had a true answer, didn't have a full answer. Right? Peter had the right answer. He was commended for the answer that was given. But Jesus had to fill it in some more for them. He had to fill it in that what it was meaning for him to be the Messiah, that there was suffering, that there was crucifixion coming. And Peter couldn't comprehend all of that. And he needed to have some details filled in for him. He needed to learn a lot more about what being Messiah was. He needed to learn what it was going to be that the Messiah was going to suffer and die and that Peter, as being his disciple, was going to have to join him in that suffering. I liked how Derek said it last week. He pointed us that what Jesus was teaching there, that to become like Jesus in his death is what we have been created to be. It's where our life is ultimately found. Our life is found in his death. And we are called to participate, to share in that death. And in that discovery of who Jesus is, we need to understand this full picture. And that picture keeps being uh, added to and, and more details for us in our hearts and in our lives. And so today we come to immediately after that moment when Jesus was starting them down this road to crucifixion, this road to Jerusalem, and he had to rebuke Peter, had to teach Peter, and he had to help him understand more about who he was and what he was becoming to be. He now moves a week later. 
And he takes us in this uh, passage in Mark chapter 9 that Peter needed to understand even more things. And I'll just read this passage for you now. Mark 9 verses 2 to 13. And we'll just read the whole thing and then we'll come back and kind of think it through a little bit after that. We begin in Mark 9 verse 2 where it says, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. And there he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. And then a cloud appeared and enveloped them. And a voice came from the cloud, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. And suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it was written about him. As we read this in God's word, we will be encouraged and blessed as we hear it. The Gospel of Mark is known to be the briefest of all the Gospels. It's been called the Action Gospel, the Newspaper Gospel. The, the details are greatly pared down in a lot of his stories. You can go to some of the parallel accounts of this transfiguration and find a few more details. But Mark just gets to the point. He gives you the highlights. And I find it sometimes incredible that he can say, say what he says without being driven to say more. I mean, in this passage, there's several incredible things that are happening, miraculous things, things that are astounding. Peter, in his writing later on, in 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, he writes this about the experience. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. To hear how this story, this moment in time is resonating in Peter's life. We saw his majesty. We saw the honor. We saw glory. We heard the voice of majestic glory. You know, when they were on that sacred mountain, that place became a sacred place for Peter. It became a place of memory. It became a place of remembrance of who Jesus was. This was a coming to know Jesus moment for Peter. That Peter understood him in a way that he couldn't understand him before this moment unfolded for him. And I would suggest if we want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection, 
and the fellowship of his sufferings, we need to catch moments like this as well. And it starts always by considering what all this means, by taking the scriptures and absorbing them, by taking them in and examining them. And then as that scripture comes into our lives, the spirit has the raw materials of information to work at in our hearts. You know, he has the information that he begins to prompt us with and can draw it out for us. And in other ways, he then allows us to enter in by his spirit so that our eyes are enlightened, so that the eyes of our inner being are strengthened, as Paul says in Ephesians. So we take in the information. We have to have the facts. We've got to have some understanding of what was going on. But then we begin to pray that God's spirit would allow this to become a moment for us of understanding who Jesus is. I'm going to come back to some of those ideas at the, as we close the sermon today. So back to God, Mark's Gospels, just remind you what's going on here. First, just remind you of the bigger context. This is a pinnacle moment. In the Gospel of Mark, it's like you move to this moment at the end of chapter 8 and into chapter 9, and Mark has been presenting Jesus to us. And then Jesus begins to unfold who he is to his disciples, his suffering, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. He starts unfolding that as he turns his eyes to move to Jerusalem, where he knows the end is at hand for him. And he begins to unfold for his disciples, and it's happening right here in Mark's Gospels. It's a pinnacle moment. He's revealing his plans. I'm the Messiah, and forcing them to ask, who is this? And so after last week, where Jesus says you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, about a week later, Mark says six days, Luke says eight days, about a week, right? Don't get hung up that they're saying different numbers. It's that kind of just estimation. A week later, Jesus, and look how it starts in verse 2. A week later, he takes his three closest friends, his three, that inner circle of disciples, Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up a very high mountain. When you read that people are going up mountains in the scriptures, you really start to anticipate here is something going to happen. I mean, God seems to love meeting people on mountains. <laughs> you think of all the Old Testament stories. You think of moments when Moses climbs those mountains, Elijah in the mountains, David hiding in the mountains. God came and met people on the mountains. Jesus, when you read the Gospels, where does he retreat to to pray? Goes up the mountain, right? He goes and he climbs. It's not that it makes it easier for God to come down. <laughs> you know, God is everywhere. But it's that seclusion. It's that sense of climbing, wanting to be in his presence. So Jesus says to his disciples, come, we're going to go up the mountain. And, and Mark is so brief here. You know, they climb this high mountain. It must take an hour's. To get up this mountain was probably Mount Hermon. Don't know how far up they went, but Mount Hermon has snow on the top. It's a high mountain. Right? So they climb this mountain in the day. And as they get up to the top, Luke's gospel says they were tired. In fact, the other disciples were sleepy as Jesus was praying. But they climb to the top of this mountain, and then Mark just goes boom. And in just six statements, he just says, and here's what happened. 
these kind of staccato kind of verses, what happens next? He says, Jesus was transfigured before them. No explanation. Doesn't really say what that meant. He just says he was transfigured before them. His clothes become dazzling white. Now he tries to describe that. He says, whiter than anyone could ever bleach them. That's a laundry term for those that don't use bleach anymore, right? Probably most people in this room hardly ever use bleach. Bleach was used to get stains out on white clothes, works beautifully. Put them in bleach, they become really white. And he's saying, it's whiter than anybody could ever bleach your clothes. And then he says, and then Moses and Elijah appear. Now, stop there for a moment. I mean, Moses and Elijah, you got to go back hundreds of thousands of years to when they were last on the planet. And Mark just says, and Moses and Elijah were there talking with Jesus. What? <laughs> you know, what's happening here? And then... They're enveloped in a cloud. Envelop. Sorry. And do you realize it's that? Am I? Anyway. Is that spelt right? Enveloped? Looks like envelope. Envelope. Anyway, sorry. My mind just. <laughs> <laughs> they were enveloped in a cloud is what I was going to say. And I thought, that's not right. Enveloped. You know what that's meaning. Either way, isn't that a great term? They were enveloped. They were put in this little envelope in a cloud, all right? <laughs> they got out of that one. It's amazing what your mind does sometimes. Anyway, but they're, you know, they're, this cloud comes, but it's more than a cloud. It's not just a foggy day arrives. This cloud moves in on them. And then out of the cloud comes a voice. You know, it's God's voice. And Mark just goes boom, 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 boom. Gives us those facts with very little explanation. And then we read, and it's all over. Right? After the cloud comes, it's done. And they're alone once again with Jesus. Like, whoa, what just went on here? This was an incredible moment. Peter says, we saw his majesty. I mean, Mark, couldn't you have spent just a little more time here? Couldn't you have just filled it out a little more? I mean, you were, we, we believe Mark is really telling Peter's story. Didn't Peter have a little more to give us in that? But I think what he's done is he's given us those high points. Because he's saying, you need to reflect on this. You need to savor what just took place here. That's our task this morning. I want us to just kind of savor this for a few moments. Think about what all this meant, because each one of those statements has a lot of meaning behind it. And it's all in this context of, who is this guy? Who is this man, Jesus? Who is he that's walking on this earth among his disciples? Who is he that's teaching and doing miracles and pointing, pointing the world towards a righteousness that is coming to the earth through his father. Who is he that's calling himself God? Who is he? And in these moments, he's, he's unfolding that for these three privileged disciples. So I'm going to put a one word to each one of those little statements that are up there in front of you. One word to just kind of help you start to remember and to think through what's going on. 
So he was transfigured. The word I'd like you to remember here is the word revelation. Literally transfigured means he was changed before them. He took on a new figure. You know, in modern days, we might say he was kind of like Optimus Prime, you know, the transformer, you know. He changed from one thing into something else so that you saw what his true nature or who he really is. He's revealing himself. In a sense, for a moment, he's opening up his dual nature. This is a moment of intense revelation that Jesus allows himself to be transfigured before these disciples. Don Carson, when he's talking about this moment, he says that Jesus changed, was not changed in his nature, just in his appearance. This is really just a self-disclosure. Jesus is just revealing who he already is. It's not that he changed from one thing to something else. It's this revealing. He's opening himself up. Tim Keller, another big name to drop, right? Tim Keller, what he says, the only real Jesus is a transfigured Jesus. He is not just a human being. Although he is completely human, he is also supernatural. See, this is the mystery of incarnation. Fully God and fully man. That Jesus, in Philippians, we're told, gave up the divine nature so that he took upon himself the nature of a man to walk here among us. But he is fully man and fully God. He didn't give up one. In a sense, he just became the other and he gave up the rights and the privileges of his divinity. And so in this moment in time, on the top of this mountain, the mystery of incarnation, the veil is somewhat lifted and the heavenly shines through. Peter says, and we saw his majesty. We saw his honor. We saw his glory. It was revealed in a way that has never been seen. We need to be reminded over and over again that our faith is founded in the sovereign reign and rule of God, who is entirely other than we are. He is supernatural, right? He is beyond our existence. He is spirit. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is all-present. And God, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing eternally in this trinity, as we express it, in his glory and majesty, came as a son into a man. He humbled himself and became one of us. And we at times can become so intellectual about these things. Kind of in our Baptist, conservative, reformed circles, you know. We can become so people of the book that I think at times we forget some of the supernatural. We forget how incredible that it is that God himself became one of us. And in this moment on top of the mountain, there is a, there is a, a peek into what's happening. It's a reminder we cannot remove the supernatural from our understanding of how we are called to live this Christian life, of how we are called to be followers of Jesus. For he himself is God Almighty. 
that he has dwelled forever in eternity and came to earth for that period of time and now dwells forever in eternity again. And by his spirit, he comes, and we have talked about that as a church, that we are becoming the dwelling in which he, we are becoming the place where he dwells by his spirit. We need to remember who Jesus is. Remember him in his glory and his majesty. It's seen perhaps better, more than just that word transfigured, by the second statement that his clothes became dazzlingly white. The word here to remember is glory. That the glory of Jesus shone through, whiter than any bleach could attain. And it wasn't that glory was added to him. It's as if the glory began to emanate through him, out of him. It overwhelmed his clothing so that they became brilliantly white. God's glory is such that it's that. It's overwhelming. Words fail to capture it. His glory is at once terrifying and compelling. It's terrifying for to be in the glory of God. You are told that to be in the glory of God, can a man see God and live? No. When you read Old Testament accounts, they hid in the rocks and God's glory passed by. It's a terrifying experience, but it's also compelling. It's where you want to be instinctively, to be found in his presence, that that glory can so wash over us that we are understanding who we are, but we understand his glory of his love and his grace and his justice and his holiness all in that moment. In Luke's account, he says that his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Trying to put words to what this looked like. I've recently gone through some eye surgery. I had to have cataracts done. If you've ever had eye stuff done, you know that moment where they shine that light into your eye. I've gone that through that far too many times over the last couple of months. But I often think of that experience at this moment. That penetrating light that just, it's painful when it's shining in your eye. You can't look. And they say, just keep your eye open. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, You know, you can't do it. That's the glory that was taking place on the mountain. And there's so many parallels to this moment in the Old Testament. Just one, Exodus 33, Moses goes up the mountain and encounters God there. You know, he used to go up and God's glory would come down. And you remember the account that he would come down from the mountain and his face shone. That Moses' face somehow was reflecting the glory of God. And the people said, we can't bear it. You need to put a veil over your face, Moses. Right? To be in the glory of God, he began to reflect it. But understand, Moses was reflecting it like the, only as the moon reflects the light of the sun. He wasn't the source. In this moment, Jesus is the source. He is the sun. The glory is in him. It is who he is. It is revealed from within himself that he is entirely equal with God. In Hebrews 1, read that the Son is the exact representation of the Father in all of his glory. And here's the moment. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who we embrace as our Savior, that we 
that we call upon to come and visit us and to be a part of us, could we stand it if he really came in all of his glory? Oh, but God, would you come in your glory? Because that's the touch we need. We need to understand his presence in this way. And they saw the glory of Jesus. And then in the, in the midst of this, Moses and Elijah show up. Again, like, what? What's this about? What's happening? Moses and Elijah standing there talking with Jesus. I mean, Mark, there's a whole lot of explaining to be done here, isn't there? Like, where'd they come from? Okay, that's probably given, you can't explain it. How did they know it was Moses and Elijah? Did they wear name tags? <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't have had a picture. Somehow, though, they understood. Here's Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Why those two? I mean, Abraham probably would have been a good one to have show up. David, Isaiah. But Moses and Elijah, they're talking with them. And as they come, the word that I'd have us remember here is the word unique. Because in Moses and Elijah coming and talking with Jesus, and it says that they, Mark doesn't give us, of course, any details about it, just that they were talking with Jesus. Luke says they were talking about things to come. I imagine there was a whole range of conversation that those guys were having. You know, helping Jesus to be prepared for what was coming and, and remembering how Moses and Elijah in the, in the Old Testament, their roles that they played. Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament stood in the gap in highly transitional times. Moses brought the law, you know, top of Mount Sinai. And he brought the law to the nation of Israel and established a brand new order for them. He represents all of the law. Elijah, a new kind of prophet coming. And as he comes, he's calling Israel to return as they're falling away into idolatry and God's judgment. But perhaps the, perhaps the best understanding is that the last two verses of our Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, these are the two guys that are talked about. Malachi says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all of Israel. And see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. The expectation, and Moses had talked about it, was there was a prophet coming like him. And the expectation of Malachi is there is Elijah going to come back. There is someone who's going to come and do what Elijah did to turn the hearts of parents and the hearts of children or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Someone needs to come and prepare the world that they will be able to withstand the wrath and destruction of God. They have lead roles, times of transition. Moses and Elijah, and God brings those two to this moment to talk with Jesus. They've both had their moments in seeing the glory of God. And Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. So here they are talking with Jesus. Do you see how this is just a great moment of completion? A great moment. And, and as, as Jesus is being revealed, it's being packed all together. And Moses and Elijah are there. 
And then Peter speaks up. The one detail, one detail that Mark gives us about this little moment is Peter didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Why'd he say it? <laughs> you know, we've learned that about Peter. Peter just, he just can't help himself. He has to move into situations. And he's so frightened. It was just, somebody's got to say something. So he says this thing, Jesus, it, it's good that we're here. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> That's why Jesus brought them along. It's good, Jesus. Uh, let's, let's build three tents, three dwelling places. Three, the word is tabernacles. It's really this idea that Peter's saying, let's, let's build these, these mini tabernacles, one for each of you guys. Because this is such an amazing moment, and you guys can stay here, and we can worship here together, and you can continue to teach and reveal us, reveal to us your plans. And it's at that moment the cloud descends. The cloud falls on Peter, on James and John as he says that. And it's almost as if God is saying, shut up. Right, Peter, you are not getting what's going on here. Right, my son is being lifted up as unique. Yes, he is, he is a prophet. He is the, the one who is following Elijah, who is John the Baptist, if you don't pick that up in the story. You know, Jesus has come, and he is unique. He is not like you are thinking right now, Peter, one of many of the prophets. He is not like Moses and Elijah. He is totally unique. And that's what you need to understand. You see, the cloud comes, and the voice speaks, and they are all alone again. Because God is saying, you need to understand how unique Jesus is. This is my son that I've given to this world, Messiah and Savior, and he will stand alone. This is Jesus. He is the one and only. What was the cloud about? The cloud is, the word would be presence. God said, I am going to be present here with you. His presence comes down. This is the glory cloud. This is the cloud that was in the midst of the camp in the wilderness. Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. Right? God saying, I am among you. I'll be with you. This is the cloud at Mount Sinai that came down on the mountain. And the instructions to Israel were when the cloud is there, when the glory of God has come, don't even touch the bottom of the mountain. Right? He is totally unapproachable in his glory like this. And this is the cloud that comes. Terror would have befallen those disciples. For who can see the glory of God and live? And yet they did. And it was so encompassing for them. And the cloud, God's glory, his presence is there and his voice rings out. And what is it about the voice? The word I'd give you is assurance it's assurance he says this is my son whom I love listen to him listen to him Peter it's not just hear him it's follow him obey him 
He is being revealed as my son. He's being revealed as Messiah. He is being revealed as the perfect lamb of God who is going to die to take away the sin of the world that you might be brought back into complete relationship with me, that you can be brought back into the family. For it's in him that we be adopted as children into his presence. His assurance is our assurance. Because he is God's son, we will also be welcomed as God's children. I think of this moment at the great doctrine of Romans 8, verses 14 to 17. Where Paul, as he is talking about the fullness of God's spirit and being led by the spirit, says this. Those who are led by the spirit of God are the children of God. And the spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. And then here, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are God's children. The spirit, when you in faith receive, accept, fall under the grace of God and by his atoning work are, become, are brought into his family. His spirit testifies with your spirit that you are his child. That inner voice says, this is my son, this is my daughter, whom I love. Romans 8 finishes off and says, And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We need to understand we die with him so that we might live. So we experience all of these things before him. And just to finish, there's these last notes in this passage. For it seems like just as with Moses, the glory seems to fade. As they leave a mountain, this, this incredible forming moment in their experience, you know, to know Jesus in this way. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. It wasn't time yet for his glory to be fully exposed. Keep it to yourselves for a while, James and John and Peter. Wait until after I've risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing, what does rising from the dead mean? <laughs> See, they had no context for that yet. They had this incredible picture, but they didn't have the full picture yet. And Jesus was giving them this context. He's saying, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again. But they weren't there yet. They needed to come back to this. And how often do we need to be reminded of the glory and our place in his heart and what he's done and what he's doing? Peter, James, and John could never look at Jesus again in the same way. They had seen his glory, but they still had to grow. The Apostle Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and yet he writes to Philippians, I want to know Christ. I want to know more. 
How do we come to know Jesus more in this way? Jesse, you and the team can come up as we close. I've got just a couple of suggestions in closing. What do we need to do to put ourselves in these places where we allow Jesus to fill out our understanding in this way that our hearts are also touched so that he becomes real? First thing I think that we need to understand is that so often this happens in our times of worship. In our moments of prayer, Worship and prayer is when we put ourselves in places where our hearts are ready to receive. It's part of what worship accomplishes for us. You know, it's, it's like going up on the mountain, right? We need to go to a place where we put ourselves where we're ready to receive. We're ready to understand. We're ready to allow God to touch us. We need to get ourselves apart. We need to be at a place where we have a mindset and an expectation. We encourage people to do that on a daily basis at home and private. You know, to have times of prayer and scripture at home. But I think the corporate worship and getting together, that's my second point, is it happens in community. You know, we need to come together. We need to worship. This Wednesday, we're just having a night of worship. Part of that is so that we might put ourselves in a place where Jesus could come and meet us. And we might know his glory. The last heartbeat that we had, we had, a, for me, an incredible moment in the middle of it. And I know I've talked to some of you. It was just in studying some scripture and praying together. And then we sang a song. As we sang that song, there was that moment where I just understood afresh, this is who Jesus really is. Right? And we need these moments. We need to be in that mindset. You know, as we gather on Sunday mornings, who do you come to hear? I hope you didn't come to hear me this morning, because you're probably disappointed. <laughs> but if you came to hear from God's Spirit, you got maybe a chance. <laughs> right? We come together to hear from God, and we do it in community, because I need you to bless me with singing, with encouragement, with stories. I need you to encourage me in your struggles where you are suffering <laughs> because in that encouragement, I realize that you're striving to know Christ. And then I think the other thing I put down there is assurance. We need to remind ourselves often of our family status. We are his children and we can rest in that. And sometimes you need just the touch you need his voice reminding you that he's his child. I often go to that Romans 8 passage and just in the quietness of my own heart, it might be in the middle of singing. It's just like, Lord, remind me I'm your child. Spirit, would you testify with my spirit that, that I really belong? I need to remember that. And then I need to submit to his authority all over again. Listen to him. Obey him. You see, we want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the power of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, would you grant us these special gifts that in the way the disciples that day saw Jesus transfigured before him, they tasted and saw his glory. Jesus, would you allow us to be reminded
in a heart way of your glory, even this morning, even this week, in moments when we need to just be affirmed and assured. Help us in this, we pray. Amen.